Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold, and Conscious Construction starts right now. Hey everybody, I'm Busy Gold, and this is Toxic Relationships, a deep dive on symbiotic dysfunction and gaslighting. Today, I always like to give us an overview of what we're going to be covering, so let's say you only have 10 minutes, you're in your car, um, you're listening to this at work, pretending that you're working, I don't know, because that's the thing that people do on podcasts. Um, This will give you a lay of the land for how you can click through this. Obviously, I highly suggest listening to the whole thing. It will take us about an hour, but this gives you the breakdown of what we're going to be covering. As always, if you are a premium member of the podcast, you can take a look at the PDF and you can see um, what our bullet points are. If there's any tools that I'm passing out, you'll be able to see the PDF. And right now, if you're on this with me live, you are subscribed to the premium podcast, so you'll be able to get all of the tools and the PDF that goes with it. So we're starting off with what is the toxic relationship, because I think a lot of people don't understand what actually constitutes a toxic relationship, how to decide if you're currently experiencing one. Many of us experience so much dysfunction early on in our lives that our red flag system goes down, and where one person that might not have experienced a lot of chaos and dysfunction in childhood would go into life and be like, wow, major uh uh-oh feeling, stranger danger, that person is bad. If you experienced a lot of dysfunction in childhood, you're much more likely to have your red flags down and not notice that somebody is theoretically uh uh-oh or stranger danger until it's way too late. So we're going to give that a definition. It's my belief in general that Defining the container for the conversation is always very important. It helps us all align with creating definitions and formulating cause and effect relationships. If we don't define something very clearly, one of us that's listening in or, you know, learning from their car in traffic can jump to a conclusion about a definition that wasn't set on my behalf and then can get upset or feel in some way victimized by something that was defined really by them and not in a a more objective, collective uh, way. So it's my goal always to make sure that we're making sure that we're very clear on how we're defining the container for the conversation before we keep going. We're going to take a look at what actually causes the toxicity in relationships. I think a lot of people, at least that I work with in break, which is a lot of people, they have a tendency to look at toxic relationships as somebody's fault, which is in and of itself a faulty way of viewing it. I would like to offer you all a concept today when we're talking about toxicity in relationships of dysymbiotic dysfunction so that we can start to see the role that we play in it. Not, of course, that we deserve any of the toxicity or the anger or aggressive behavior that's flying at us, but so that we can understand, contextually speaking, how we got ourselves there, and what role we're either implicitly or explicitly playing in this exchange. And then also, moving into the mechanisms of the toxicity, how are we actually bringing this toxicity about, or how are we experiencing this toxicity? We're going to then go into what the concept of gaslighting is. I think a lot of people throw this around, but don't really have, again, that container definition of what this is, what it looks like, and how it functions. So we're going to go into that. Um, We're also going to take a look at Am I taking crazy pills? 
what it's like to be on the other side of gaslighting, which uh, is not fun for anybody. Then we're going to how to shift the cycle to establish if the relationship is worth saving. We're going to learn even on just this one hour uh, podcast, we're going to learn some very simple tools to course correct toxic relationships and actually assess if this is something that came into your life to teach you a lesson that you've now learned and can move away from, or if this is something that you are theoretically, at least in part, triggering some of this toxic behavior so that you're able to learn what role you're playing in it to stop it and therefore stop eliciting the response from your partner that you're perceiving as toxicity. Um, Then wrap it all up with some conversation about communication boundaries that will shift the conversation instead of set off the toxic cycle. So that is the lay of the land. Can I get through these seven large topics in 50 minutes? I don't know. We shall find out. So as always, feel free to type in any questions that you have for me. Intermittently, I'll be kind of taking a peek over to the right-hand side, seeing what I can answer cohesively in in the actual conversation. But because a lot of our listeners are just that, they're listeners on the podcast and they don't have my pretty face in front of you. Uh, with our lecture slides, it won't make as much con. Uh, won't make as much sense. So, there are obviously many ways that people can be engaged in toxic relationships, and I think one of the most interesting aspects of the toxic relationship in general. And I actually wrote a blog post about it maybe like two years ago, called "Toxic Relationships with Hypoallergenic People," meaning like you know the dogs that like no one's allergic to this dog. I'm sure there are people that you've met in your life who are like, wow, that is the most vanilla, benign person I've ever met in my life. And yet that vanilla, benign person gets into a relationship with the wrong symbiotic dysfunctional pair, and it's a whole huge battle royale mess. This happens because our source beliefs get activated in the other person. So before we get into the source belief conversation, which is obviously a a keystone of the work that I teach in break, I want to start to be clear on what we're defining as a toxic relationship. So this is our toxic relationship definition. And obviously there's wiggle room and play in here. Um, but I'm pretty certain that most of you will listen to these and be like, yep, yep. Check, check a check one, two. So let's start with one that requires constant calculation to avoid setting someone off. This is not the way you're supposed to live your life. Now, If you grew up constantly walking on eggshells, always having to calculate to not set mommy or daddy off, this is a learned behavior, right? So you're much less likely to be like, this is abnormal. It's just going to seem like living life to you. Uh, Sadly, that's not the way it's supposed to be, and it is certainly evidence of being engaged in a toxic relationship. Another is one in which energy is not shared equally or reciprocated. I talk about this a lot in my work. And I know we also talked about it on last week's podcast on shifting into consciousness. Uh, To give you a brief recap, the concept is effectively inside of your physical body, right? You contain 100% of your own energy. So inside of your skin, you are 100% of your own sovereign energy. When you get into a relationship with another person, you're sharing energy, right? You're, You're giving, you're receiving, and vice versa. And obviously, over the course of that relationship, certain life events might get in the way and maybe, you know, you injure yourself and your partner has to give and give and give while you take and take and take because you're injured. But in theory, if the relationship is energetically functional and not toxic, that should balance itself out over time. 
Unfortunately for many of us, if we were to be honest with our energetic giving and receiving in our relationship, it's not simply perfect storm life events that shift this energetic balance. In many cases, we are just simply engaged in relationships where we're constantly the giver and they're constantly the taker or vice versa. So what we're going to define here about the not sharing energy equally or reciprocating is if there is not an equal give and take, knowing of course that there are different aspects of your life where you can be giving and receiving. If we look at the lifetime relationship and we get basic a baseline energetic read, you know, I pretty much over the five years of this relationship, I give about 50% and I also receive about 50%. By the way, that's not at all true to my relationship, but we'll put a pin in that one. This is not about me. Um, I'm just, again, reminding you that this isn't coming from a place of like, I'm perfect and you guys, no. So this is an important exercise to do is to start to look at if I'm 100% of my energy and my partner's 100% of their energy, when we come into a shared collective, we're now sharing 100% of our our intimate relationships energy. And if there's something off about that exchange, it's going to result in toxicity of some form. Um, number three, one that gets you off your desired path or goals. If you're someone that's very career oriented or you know exactly what you love in life, you know what turns you on, you know what things excite you, you love adventure, and all of a sudden you find yourself engaged in a relationship where all of the things that you love to do or were very driven to do have either fallen by the wayside, gotten completely deprioritized, or you've just completely lost touch with them to the point of being a zombie. You're probably living in a toxic relationship. One that leaves you feeling exhausted, defeated, or apathetic. Again, relationships are meant to be giving and receiving in nature, so they're supposed to be something that really nourishes us and builds us up, teaches us lessons, etc. It's not supposed to be something where we just plug into a wall that takes all of our energy away and then we're just sitting there like this lifeless, flopping sack of bones. That's not how relationships are supposed to be. And again, this is meant to be looked at over the course of the relationship. So don't just take this like one, two month period where like you got in a car accident and then your husband lost his job or whatever it was. Don't look at these, I call them perfect storm moments and blame all of these issues on this like one, two month period. Be honest with yourself and take a look at the lifetime of that relationship and try to give yourself an accurate assessment here. Like have you always felt exhausted, defeated, and apathetic? Or has something switched and become toxic? In which case you can see like maybe the first 15 years we were married, it wasn't like this. And then some event or some switch flipped in my partner and now I'm experiencing tox- toxicity. So it's important to take this lifetime snapshot and not just focus in on one moment that's pissing you off and use that as a reason to be like, the whole thing's toxic. Uh, somebody that makes you feel like you're not yourself. Obviously, relationships are meant to bring out the best in us, not to make us completely lose touch with who we are. Parts of this can have to do with being engaged in a codependent relationship, which we're not going to get too much into on this specific podcast. But if you feel as though the person you once knew is like mildly accessible in your brain, but parts of you are starting to feel like it's slipping away, you're probably engaged in a toxic relationship. And somebody that's experiencing these fleeting moments of like, how did this happen? How did I become this person? That's your actual true soul identity. Like, help, help. 
we're experiencing dysfunction. Help, help. You're in a toxic relationship. Um, often we have all these other societal norms and conformity standards that are making us push those messages back inside and being like, nope, but I married this person. So yay. So we're going to take a look at all these things. And of course, you know, no webinar slides would ever be complete without Will Ferrell being trapped in a glass cage of emotion. So uh, for those of you that are listening to the audio podcast, there's a big picture of Will Ferrell. I'm in a glass cage of emotion, which I'm sure we've all been in from time to time. So taking two seconds to look at some of these questions. When you say relationship, am I correct in assuming it can be a non-romantic one too, i.e. parent, friend, or boss? Yes, absolutely. And we're actually going to draw some defining lines here. We're going to say relationship right now is any shared communication, behavior, emotional responses with another human. But I would like to focus this on interpersonal relationships, so meaning between two people. So there's certain types of relationships that are based off of other source beliefs that we're going to get to in a moment that tend to be triggered more in the intimate relationship category. And then there are others that tend to be triggered more in like the friendship work category. I will say that it's very uncommon to experience both usually you're a one or the other type of person. You're like, your friendships and work life and everything is just a complete clusterfuck, but relationships, you seem to be pretty stable or relationships is the crazy part. And then friendships are pretty stable. It's pretty rare that you see someone's issues manifest in both simultaneously. That's not to say that it's not possible. I've seen it. Uh, it's just not as common. Um, so we're getting question. I heard you speak about your twin flame. I am currently married, but believe I have met mine and she is a female. What actually is that? Can you describe more about it instead of me just Googling what I'm experiencing? You don't want to Google it. Um, remind me toward the end to hit on the twin flame thing. And also to this person who shall remain nameless. Um, I'm going to be talking a lot about this particular subject at the break live event in September, and you'll have access to those lectures because you're currently enrolled in break. So I'm going to be talking a lot more about kind of the esoteric spiritual relationship thing in break live. This is kind of a more tangible, practical relationship conversation, but if we have time to touch on it at the end, just hit me up again through chat. Um, but also remember that I'm going to be giving a whole lecture going deep on that at break life. So thank you for the question. Okay, so behind every toxic relationship, and I mean literally every toxic relationship, there is a perfect symbiotic dysfunction. What I mean when I say symbiotic dysfunction is exactly what I'm addicted to, right? The emotional state that I'm addicted to is exactly what this person loves to feed me via their emotional response. So if I love to experience anger and I'm going to be, I just want to be pissed all the time. Of course, not consciously. It's not like I'm like, anybody want to make me mad? Can somebody come here and make me mad? Of course, this is happening on a subconscious level. And I'm going to break that down for you in just a few moments. But if I'm addicted to experiencing anger, I'm probably going to pick a relationship to get myself involved in that makes me real pissed, right? And usually it's in sneaky, non-obvious ways where it, you know, it happens in kind of a subversive or implicit way, and it might not start off as obvious. And then as we get deeper into this energetic sharing of the relationship, I'm angry all the time. Um, how I choose to react from my anger, what courses of action I take, how I behave, what I say, what my body language is like. In the context of symbiotic dysfunction, 
those things are likely exactly what trigger this other person into their state of emotional addiction. So when we talk about this concept of symbiotic dysfunction, exactly what my body is chemically craving, even though it's horrible and destructive, is exactly what I actually get activated in by the way you treat me. And my response from that emotional state is how I get you triggered. This is basically a cycle of doom and disaster that happens to us all. And one of the more important concepts that we have to understand to see how this actually functions is for us to understand, obviously, a quick pass at what a source belief is. So in my break method, School of Sustainable Self-Mastery, we do a lot of work to get very clear and actually even test our hypothesis on what our source belief is. For lack of ability to go too in-depth for time reasons, let's just say that our source belief is something that our brain comes to in an effort to protect ourselves through repeated exposure to our environment in childhood. So whatever we experience with the highest frequency in childhood, knowing that obviously our environment and our childhood is not within our control, right? We're usually, uh, unfortunately, experiencing an environment that's 100% created and curated by our parents, our school, if we were raised in any sort of religious background, um, all of those different environments, we're not very much in control of that. We're kind of just a a little innocent, little very impressionable thing kind of floating from one thing to the next. And a lot of messages of danger or fear or lack of safety get imprinted on our brains because our brain is trying to protect us. It doesn't, it wants to keep us safe. It wants to keep us alive. And a lot of these messages effectively give us a, a protective mechanism that keeps operating all the way into adulthood that keeps us from engaging in relationships or interactions or achieving goals that actually would give us these opportunities to prove to ourselves that we are in fact safe or we are in fact good enough, we are in fact loved, all the things that run in opposition to what we learned in childhood. So for source belief, a quick past definition, our source belief is going to be that message that our brain latched onto in an effort to keep us safe or understand our environment and to protect our tiny little innocent heart. The most common ones here, and I'm going to talk about the most common three in the context of this work in toxic relationships. Number one is usually I'm not enough. Uh, This can obviously happen through feeling rejected by a parent or that the personality that you just came into this world with was somehow needing to be squashed out or shamed or guilted because it didn't match with either the parent's cultural values or the religious values, in which case, again, you experience that kind of rejection and abandonment of who you are, um, leading to the I'm not enough, or if you constantly are feeling like you're getting pitted against a sibling who's like this dream child, and then you're just always getting punished and told that you're inferior, that can create that message of I'm not enough. It's a very common one, probably the most common Uh, Second most common would be, I have to be in control to be safe. This happens obviously coming out of uh, any sort of childhood trauma, which by the way, we won't delve too deeply into this, but I think people need to broaden their personal definitions of trauma because as a child, we come in this kind of blank slate of innocence, not expecting to come into the world to experience the the fear and the pain and the shame to the degree that we do. And for many of us, it doesn't really take that much to have experienced trauma. And I think a lot of us get, unfortunately, 
stuck in this comparison game where it's like, I have to invalidate what happened to me as a child because it wasn't as bad as what happened to you. So like, how can mine be traumatic if yours was this much worse objectively? And that's not how the brain actually functions. You're only chemically patterned with what you perceive happens to you. So I could perceive something in a very traumatizing way that somebody else that had had a a few more insulting impacts before that might have been like, "Ah, no big deal. Like, I've seen that before. Again, because the red flag system might be diminished. So when we talk about these source beliefs, right, we're right now using I'm not enough or I have to be in control to be safe, right? I need all of the information to feel safe and in control of my environment if everything's really chaotic, that is how their brain is going to seek that satiation, right? I've got to, sometimes this might look even like OCD types of behaviors or like counting or watching exits, counting. I've had clients in break method that carry an emergency backpack all the time. Um, believe me, by the end of break, that was done. No more safety backpack. Um, and then another one that I think comes up a lot is I have to hold it all together for everyone. This comes from typically being put in a peacekeeper position where it's not that necessarily you don't feel like like your identity is personally being attacked. You don't feel like you're not enough. Usually you actually feel pretty solid about yourself because you believe that you have this ability to keep the peace, hold it all together for everyone. Um, But then there's also definitely aspects of control that can weave their way into this one because one of the ways that you might attempt to hold it all together for everyone is to assert some sort of control over an environment that feels out of control. So we're going to really focus on these three. Most everybody fits into these three categories. I have seen some other ones that have a little bit more of a deep-seated questioning of humanity, esoteric nature, but these are the three that we are going to stick with for this. So when we talk about the symbiotic dysfunction, often we end up in a relationship, right? And this doesn't just have to be intimate, with somebody whose source belief is at odds with ours. Um, Obviously, we don't go around in our environment unless you've been through break being like, hi, my name is Busy. My source belief is I have to hold it all together for everybody. So don't do this and this and this because I will crumble like like a wall. Crumble like a wall. I don't know. I was like picturing like an old antique wall. I don't know. Whatever. Crumble like a wall. Um... Anywho, so one of the things that we have to remember is that obviously we don't go into our environment every day just outwardly saying like, hi, I'm busy and these are my issues. What's your name and what are your issues? So it can take time to uncover these kind of deep-seated beliefs. Also, by the way, I might add, often the way that you lead in through conversation is very much like claiming the opposite of your source belief. For instance, somebody that believes they're not enough might actively go out into their lives and do everything they can to show other people, like, look how great you are. Look inside yourself. Like, you are love. I am love. And if we really get deep down in there, those are actually override messages that they've adopted in there because their brain is constantly firing that they are, in fact, not enough. So when we look at these source beliefs and how they fit together, typically when we start to extract that information back down to the roots we can see that these source beliefs and our emotional response to the source beliefs are part of this cycle of doom. So when we look at the actual mechanisms of toxicity, how does the toxicity actually get created? What is the what are the aspects that go into the creation of this experience, right? Because I think we all know that 
toxicity takes many forms and it really is a palpable experience. Like you, for most of you, you can tell when something immediately turns toxic. You're like, wow, it was like a little uncomfortable a few weeks ago. And now every time I think about it, my stomach turns. That means you're experiencing toxicity. So one of the ways that people actually carry out this cultivation of a toxic relationship is through their communication style, their word choice, their tone, their timing of communication, reconciliation of reality. This is a big one. And I know that if you listened to my last webinar on shifting into consciousness, you learned about this concept of non-duality, right? There isn't just one way that reality happens or what I would refer to as the God replay. We can't all just like hit the pause button and be like, God, roll back the tape. And what they play, we would all have been like, yep, that's totally what I saw. We would all see something completely different. And for those of you that are not listening to these podcasts in order, which I do recommend that you do, that you do do, effectively, the best analogy to explain this quickly is Whatever happened to you in your childhood, let's say that that put on a pair of red glasses, right? So your childhood patterned you to look at the world through red glasses. My childhood patterned me to look at the world through blue glasses. You and I could be sitting face to face, me with my blue, you with your red, and we could be engaging in a conversation. And if we were both interviewed about what color the conversation was, I would be like, it was blue. And she'd be like, no, it was red. Is one of us a liar? No. We're both seeing the world through a very specific tinted lens. So when I say, no, our conversation was blue, and you're saying, no, our conversation was red, we're both actually telling the truth. Our goal as elevated conscious entities is to start to understand how we start to reconcile these different identities and bring communication somehow to the middle so that we can say, okay, I can see where what happened to you would have patterned you to see it this way. This is how I saw it. How can we create a joint reality that we can both agree on so that we can keep moving this relationship forward? Unfortunately, with toxic relationships, reconciliation of reality is one of the number one ways that you actually experience the toxicity. This is that experience of, am I taking crazy pills? Like, I'm pretty sure I'm not nuts. And yet, if I were to just believe every single thing this person said to me, I'd be a complete looney tune by now. Um, usually this is evidence that you're experiencing at least some level of gaslighting. So that reconciliation of reality, if you're constantly having your perception of events or reality pitted against each other, this is probably a mechanism of toxicity. Then we also have our emotional responses. This can be feeling like you've got to walk on eggshells or always be trying to calculate or preempt what things you do that put them in a mood so that you're constantly altering your personality. These are not things that are supposed to be happening in your day-to-day life. And then, of course, these are much more brutal physical responses, such as abuse or reclusivity, meaning that person actually completely withdraws from you. Uh, This can be physical or energetic or with you know, love and affection and things like that, or oscillating between one and the other. They're like all up in your space, controlling what you do, or then when you want them, they're nowhere to be found. Pretty common. Um, And also with the physical responses, physical attempts to control you, like, you know, controlling your schedule, stalking you, keeping you closed in the house, things like this that are sadly common. So let's go into defining gaslighting because I I see people 
talk about this in a context that isn't necessarily gaslighting. And I want to start to, again, define that container so that we can have a conversation that hopefully leads somewhere useful for you. So gaslighting is typically deformed, defined, deformed. It's been a long day, guys. And I have three more lectures after this, but we out here, we're getting it done. Gaslighting is manipulating someone by psychological meanings into questioning their own sanity. Now, a few interesting thoughts about this concept. The more you research gaslighting, there's definitely a general consensus that gaslighting overall is done intentionally as a control mechanism. Through the work that I've done in break and how frequently I've seen both sides of this, because I work with um, not only business partners a lot in break in separate groups, but also husband and wives, girlfriend, boyfriend, girlfriend and girlfriend, wife and wife. We've had literally all of the above in break. You start to see very clearly that a lot of these people, while on one side it might genuinely look like they're gaslighting somebody, the other person genuinely has no idea that they're doing it until you do work like break or something that pulls this information and data out in a way where they can start to do some honest self-exploration and then also see the patterns of the outcomes and look at them and say, oh my God, my faulty perception of this particular area of my life when I get activated in my source belief makes me act like this. And I felt so rationalized in doing it, but I see how it's creating this toxicity. So I actually have seen quite a few, I would say the majority of cases of gaslighting where it would appear that that person is, you know, back there like puppet mastering, but really until they get out of their woundedness, they can't see what they're doing either. So I would like to suggest that perhaps a lot of the uh, clinical conversations on gaslighting are perhaps, I think, you know, giving too much power to to the people that actually are doing these things on purpose. Because I, I don't think that although there are aspects of everyone's driving their own vehicle, right? Everyone's for the most part in control of their own brain, except for maybe let's say people that are experiencing some sort of severe psychological illness like schizophrenia. For the most part, we're driving our own brain, right? Thus making our own decisions, choosing our responses. But I don't think the vast majority of human beings realize how much of their decision-making, perception, communication, body language is really driven by subconscious thoughts and behavior that we're really not aware of until we do something like break method that forces you to become aware of it and you have to sit there and look at it and be like, wow, I can't run from this anymore. This is a thing. So I would like to dig a little bit deeper on this and hypothesize that perhaps more people don't realize that they're doing it or feel so justified in the choices that they're making that they can't really see it and have the opportunity to rectify it and even feel any sort of remorse until they've done some sort of work on self-awareness and cultivating self-awareness. So in break method, we use a series of exercises that actually extract data in ways that the actual student doesn't know how we're going to use it or why. So their protective mechanisms and their innate desire to hide and compartmentalize information 
isn't able to, to protect them effectively. And we are able to create this, imagine it like an EKG of every physical, emotional relationship outcome in their lives. And they can step back, squint and look at it and see where like all of these huge issues are and what the commonality is in them. And they're able to actually look objectively at what sort of perception or faulty perception is going into the cultivation of these events. So although the vast majority of research on the subject talks about how much of it is done intentionally, I would argue that it's not in many cases done intentionally. Um, I'm going to go through three types of gaslighters that I've seen a lot in my work, experienced a lot personally in my life. Um, but these are some quick signs to see if you are being gaslit. Um, they tell blatant lies, the kind of lies where it's like, again, you hear it and you're like, am I taking crazy pills? That doesn't match at all my experience of reality. Uh, they deny they ever said something, even when you have proof. So when you're actually like sitting there with proof and you're like, face the truth, and they're just sitting there trying to like wind themselves up in all these ways or pass blame or divert the conversation away from the actual having the experience of having to acknowledge the truth. They use what's near and dear to you as ammunition. So wherever your weak spots are, where they know they can cause you the most pain, those are always the things that they will puppet master the most. They wear you down over time. Typically people that are gaslighters, it's not like this one big, bold, explosive thing. They'll like test their environment. They'll see what they can get away with and then they just keep making it bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, their actions definitely don't match your words. So we'll use this example. If somebody positions themselves to be somebody's best friend, spends all this time with them, and then behind the scenes is always talking smack about them, trying to get other people to turn on them, You've got to sit back and wonder, like, why would somebody do all these things while also showing up as their best friend? Those actions don't match. So when you start to see those inconsistencies or the things that are incongruent, probably a good example of like, hmm, that doesn't make sense. Um, and I have so many personal experiences with this, but for privacy's sake, I will pop down, all the way down. They throw in positive reinforcement to confuse you. So especially when you feel like you're on to them or you're starting to break through to actually pulling the wool off your eyes, they'll do something to sort of positively reinforce you and actually get you off their scent for a little bit to try to control. They throw in confusion uh, to weaken people. So they'll intentionally create confusion around you and create conflicting stories and things so that you can never feel like you get to the bottom of anything. They project, so usually this is a projection of their own actual wounds onto you or your behavior. So if they feel like they were victimized by a certain parental figure, they're much more likely to, in their head, make you out to be aligned with the same behaviors and communication styles as their parental figure that they have their big wound with so that they can still rationalize their shitty behavior and operate in that wounded mechanism. Uh, they try to align people against you. This one's a really important one. Um, they're very rarely functioning alone. They're not usually just gaslighting you. They're trying to like get your friends in on it and like coworkers and be like, see, she's nuts. Um, very common. They tell others that you're crazy. Um, obviously, because when you're trying to reconcile reality with the people that are supposed to be there for you. You're like, okay, here's what happened. I feel like I'm going nuts. I just need someone to like bounce these things off with. 
if they can turn those people against you, then you've lost all ability to keep yourself sane. Perfect move. And then they tell you that everyone else is a liar. So whenever there's evidence to support that perhaps they're gaslighting you, they're very quick to say that everybody else is lying. Again, going back to number two, even if you have proof. Um, Talia says triangulation, absolutely triangulation, right? Don't look over here, look over here and then over there. And you're like, but I'm still, nope, here. Then cognitive dissonance. So one of the things, we're going to get into the cognitive dissonance thing in a moment. Um, in general, a lot of these attempts to weaken your support structures outside are to prevent you from having those that moment of cognitive dissonance where you actually break through and you free yourself and you're like, ah, this is gaslighting, I'm free. When they get rid of all of your supporting structures, it, it makes it harder for you to get through that cognitive dissonance to actually push through to the other side. Um, somebody writes in, I love what you're saying about gaslighting, it makes sense. It's knowing to not take things personal with others, tough to do sometimes, but true... Yes, absolutely. So obviously we've got a lot of people on here right now. There are plenty of moments in your life and people where it's like you could probably check off like three or four of these on the list. But to genuinely be experiencing gaslighting, it's essentially got to be all of these, maybe like not as much one or two. But this isn't just like a pick two or three on here and then call it gaslighting. It needs to be effectively this type of scenario all at once because it's a multifaceted approach to create disruption and make you question your reality. Now, in the work that I've done, I've actually isolated, in my opinion, three different types of gaslighters. Number one, these are the people that know they're doing it. Like there's actually a level of awareness where they might even have moments of like being on their own where they feel some remorse and they're like, oh, I'm really doing harm to this person. But then it kicks in that they don't want to get caught. So they just continue it on. Right. They just kind of build this like web of lies. Um, but one of the mechanisms that allows them to keep going is that they rationalize to themselves about why it's justified. Well, like this person did this and this and this to me. So you know, I'm being victimized, so it's okay that I'm doing all these destructive things. Again, what I was just talking about, how in this case, it's activating whatever their childhood wound is. So however they felt victimized, they're somehow projecting the role of the predator onto you and rationalizing their shitty behavior. Then two, this is less common, those who are so wounded that they would actually pass a lie detector test stating their case even though it's completely Looney Tunes, their fractured reality genuinely makes them perceive reality in a way that's so shaped by their childhood trauma that you genuinely cannot reconcile reality with them. Uh, this happens a lot with borderline personality disorder. Uh, this can happen, obviously, with narcissistic personality disorder. It can certainly happen dealing with schizophrenia. Often, when there's this deep fracturing of experience of reality, typically these people tend to also have addictive behaviors, some sort of self-harm, and then also suicide is very high here. Um, often because these people genuinely believe their fractured reality so much that when they go and question other people and they're like, you saw that, right? Or like, you experienced that, right? Every time they bump up against the like, nope, I'm not so sure what you're talking about, or nope, that wasn't my experience at all. 
they typically turn in on themselves and they either try to self-medicate or self-harm. Because again, just bringing up what Tali brought up, it brings them to that place of cognitive dissonance. And because there's such a deep-seated childhood wound here, they are not equipped to push through the cognitive dissonance to actually rewire the belief on the other side. Then we've got number three, the genuine sociopaths. The psychopaths that will do absolutely anything for control. These are the people that know exactly what they're doing. They're doing it to fuck with you on purpose. Um, But this is not the person that's like having these fleeting moments of remorse and like able to rationalize internally what they're doing. These are the people that are just genuinely nutballs. Um, So I have seen a lot of one and like gray area between one and three. And I do think that some people have aspects of both number one and number three. So that would be the know they're doing it and rationalizing it mixed with a little bit of also being a sociopath slash psychopath. Um, in those cases, I would argue that a lot of the their, vic- their perceived, I should say, victimization that's led them to being that type one person, they might have been victimized by somebody that was a number three type. So they're mirroring certain aspects of that predator's behavior while they're also doing this. It's very common. Somebody types in. Or they're obsessive even after you leave the relationship. True. Typically, and we're going to get into this whole symbiotic dysfunction piece and what that actually looks like and how you can hopefully start to cut ties and shift the conversation and the interaction quite a bit. But often, if something's genuinely toxic and it's fed into the symbiotic dysfunction, in a deep-seated way, even after you break off from it, the behavior itself is still going to persist. So one of the things I find really interesting, and it's obviously easier for me to use examples of my life because I'm not somebody that likes to hide stuff like this. I'd much rather leave my shitty, traumatic life experiences out there for us to learn from and then also hopefully remind myself of what not to do for next time. So um, I actually used to have like an unbelievably toxic relationship with my husband. I know that that is not news to most people that have known me for quite some time. We've navigated through a lot of it, and that certainly does not mean that our relationship is perfect because it's absolutely not. But if you compare our relationship, you know, three, four years ago to now, our day-to-day interactions look drastically different. They're virtually unrecognizable. So one of the things that I've found interesting when digging into this topic is that one of the mechanisms that they keep you pulled into this questioning of reality, toxicity, and gaslighting concept is that they typically strike a chord that has aspect of truth to it. So you know that you're not like all the way crazy, but it's just enough truth to kind of pull you in and at least make you question yourself. And I thought of a really tangible, easy-to-understand example from something I experienced. So I'm just going to read it because it's a little bit easier. And for those of you that are listening to the podcast, I'm having a ton of lecture slides here, so this will be easy. Um, So here's a short example that's tangible and easy to wrap your head around. He'd have huge outbursts of anger, verbal attacking, and aggressive behavior. When I'd say, why are you doing this? Why? What did I do to deserve this? He'd blame his anger on something seemingly true to get me pulled into the cycle. One of the things he used as rationalization was me not cleaning up after myself. 
one clearly doesn't actually justify the other, and yet I'd get pulled into the toxicity because I knew there was some truth to what he was choosing to blame it on. So coming back to that in a sec. So to be fair, I grew up and, you know, I should have clearly made it to age, you know, like 27 and learned how to clean up after myself, but I was kind of a little shithead. And I grew up with a cleaning lady and God bless my parents for picking up after me. I just, I had like complete reign to do whatever I wanted. I trashed my room as I'm sure a lot of, you know, high school age people do. And I just was always so independent and never had people around me to kind of reflect back my messiness. And, you know, bless him. He was the first person that really not, he didn't mirror my messiness. He was actually a very controlled, clean person. And this drove him up the wall. Now, while this is true, like we can extract this out. Like, was I messy? Yes. Was he not messy? Yes. These are truths. But my inability to pick up after myself in the kitchen, let's say, after I've made our kids and family dinner, that does not actually elicit a valid response of somebody like berating you with, you know, swears and anger. But when you know that there are aspects of what they're saying that are true, you kind of for a second, you get kind of like knocked off course and you're like, oh God, is there truth to this? And you start to listen and you get pulled into the craziness. So one of the things that I think is important to gain from if you're going back and reflecting on things that happened in the past that were toxic or you're currently in a toxic relationship, I think as a soul, we engage in certain toxic relationships because we do have something to learn. And obviously, this is a very human, basic, tangible thing that I'm talking about with cleaning. Believe me, there were other things that I had to face and learn about myself in this relationship. But this was still something that I had to learn. It didn't deserve or elicit the toxic aggression, of course. But there were aspects of this that helped me grow and acknowledge and move forward. So just remember that even in these toxic environments and toxic relationships, it's still important to do the work to isolate what areas you have to grow while also obviously doing your best to keep control of your concept of reality to not get knocked so far off course that you let this person completely control you. Um, also, this is another one for me. Uh, I have many lessons to learn about applying boundaries. And this is something that I would say if I was looking at the last six months of my life and had to have some pretty tough realizations, this is one that was really tough for me to realize because I'm not a people pleaser. And most people that have trouble with putting up boundaries are people pleasers. So it was really easy to be like, don't look left, look right. But I realized that my inability to put up boundaries and protect myself actually comes from my source belief, which is that I have to hold it all together for everybody. Remember earlier in the episode, we were talking about how the most common are, I'm not enough, I have to be in control of my environment to be safe, or I have to hold it all together for everybody. Mine is the latter. And for me, I was completely distracted by this concept of like, you have to be a people pleaser to not put up boundaries. But I've had a very clear realization the last six months of my life that uh, it is actually, in fact, one of my biggest issues. And it comes from being a peacekeeper as a child and always feeling like I have to hold it all together for everybody and constantly be assessing my environment or somebody else's needs while also assessing my perception of what they're incapable of doing. So I'll repeat that again. My perception, right, a totally subjective experience of what they're incapable of doing. 
So it still comes back to some aspect of safety, right? If I've assessed them and I feel like they're capable of doing some skill, um, I end up taking it on myself. In many cases, allowing this to perpetuate actually robs them of a chance to learn the skill or to learn the hard way that they don't possess the skill that's required. Um, But it also makes me push down this voicing of boundaries and allow this toxicity kind of fester in my life and create a much bigger problem long term. And the reason I bring this up is, you know, a lot of times we're the one experiencing the toxicity, like, oh my God, I've been victimized. It's so awful. I just, you know, they're trying to make me feel like I'm crazy all the time. Well, now let's look at it from the other perspective. I can see how this behavior that I have can create that experience for somebody else, right? So what lies on the other side of me feeling like I have to hold it all together for everyone and not actually saying the tough thing, like you shouldn't be doing this, we need to part ways, whatever the tough thing is, what actually like happens on the other side of that is that I create in them anger, resentment, and potentially lack of trust. So what feels like on one side, you can be this like peacekeeper just trying to like juggle it all for everybody and like, you know, trying to prioritize people's sanity. Really, you're actually starting the biggest war of your life on the other side. And I do think it's really important, especially when we're talking about this concept of non-duality and there's no like black or white, right or wrong, to actually start to see what somebody else could be seeing so that you can come to some sort of reconciled reality in between so that you can move forward as a collective, I think it is important to take a look at the other side, right? Like as much as I was on one side of, you know, my husband Chris's craziness for many years, I've also, I can see where my behavior would elicit craziness on the other side and where in that moment I would have just thought that like I was totally justified in what I was doing, but it could definitely make somebody else's life an absolute living hell while also enabling them to never learn a painful lesson about what they might be lacking. So that was an example of number one type. Then we also have the type two person where they actually would pass a lie detector test because they believe their bullshit so much. They're so deep in it that they have no actual concept of reality. So this one, a good example of this is somebody with borderline personality disorder I obviously see a lot of this in my work. I've also had my own personal experiences with this too. Uh, This scenario happens, we'll go deeply into borderline personality for just a moment. So most common for this to happen in a parent-child relationship, even more common for it to be specifically a mother-daughter relationship. And effectively what happens is the parent, in this case, we'll use this hypothetical example, bumps into into something in their reality that makes them feel in some way that they're not enough, they're inadequate, that they're wrong, or they have to actively look inside to take personal responsibility, which is an absolute no-go for borderline personality disorder. And in this moment of having to actually reflect or self-assess, their entire reality fractures. And when that reality fractures, their brain goes right back to that childhood experience of abuse whether it was physical, emotional, sexual, or sometimes all of the above, that childhood wound, how we've been talking about putting on these glasses, let's say as soon as that childhood wound is activated, all of a sudden everything they see now has a purple lens to it. So it doesn't matter how many times you're like, mom, that was blue, mom, that was blue, mom, that was blue. They're always going to see it as purple. 
And there's very little room for reconciliation with people that are having this experience because they genuinely believe it. There's no wiggle room to move into cognitive dissonance. In fact, in most cases like this, it actually brings out childlike rage. It can bring out throwing things, tantrums, um, even more abuse. I've actually seen this actually turn somebody genuinely into a child where they start stomping their feet, covering their ears, and basically going like, la, 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 la. And this is as an adult, I might add. So this shows you how they really revert to that fractured childhood perception of reality because their brain is not allowing them to push into that cognitive, cognitive dissonance. So it actually... Not, it leaves absolutely no room for any sort of experience of the non-duality type of consciousness. Um, this can also be the case with narcissistic personality. So not just borderline, but also narcissists. And as a side note, a lot of women with borderline were raised by either two narcissists or one narcissist, but there's a definite correlation in one experience patterning and setting the stage for the next. So to recap what types of behaviors might be involved in narcissistic personality disorder, an exaggerated sense of self-importance, have a sense of entitlement and require constant excessive admiration. So one of the key pieces of narcissism is that you constantly need that feedback and validation that you're so great. Somebody that actually has a pretty good solid self-concept doesn't need any admiration. In fact, often will be like, no, 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 I don't. It will make them uncomfortable. Somebody that has narcissistic personality disorder will genuinely seek it out. And it's something that fuels them and builds them up because they don't actually feel it for themselves. They're getting it through that validation piece. Uh, expect to be recognized as superior even without the achievements to war warrant it. Um, I see this a lot in certain people around me. Um, it just shows that there's that disconnect in their ability to accurately self-assess. This can be accurately self-assess work ethic, um, effort, energy put into something because they always have this kind of inflated self-concept. They're unlikely to be able to accurately reflect on pretty much anything in their lives. Uh, believe they are superior and then they can only associate with extra special people. Uh, obviously, this is something that seems like it would make sense because they're trying to like rub elbows with people that make them feel good about themselves. And certainly there is some aspect of validation in this. I actually would argue that specific to narcissistic personality disorder, part of this is also meant to only associate with other people that tend to have a similar imbalance so that they never have to actually experience vulnerability. When you only associate with people that are feeling self-important in this way, you don't leave a lot of room for genuine, authentic communication and vulnerability, which is their absolute worst nightmare. Typically, narcissism is born out of deep abandonment and heartbreak in childhood, um, usually by a parent. So every step that they take deeper into this narcissism is to, in their minds, obviously subconsciously, protect their heart and not ever let themselves get hurt again. Like, don't worry, I'll never let anyone hurt you. Basically like the royal we talking to themselves. So if they only hang out with these people that are very similar to themselves, they'll never actually be in a position where they have to let their guard down and be vulnerable and theoretically, again, push into this cognitive dissonance and learn that their belief is faulty, that their source belief is not true. 
Um, also here we see monopolizing conversations or belittling or looking down on people that they perceive as inferior, um, become impatient or angry when they don't receive special treatment. So like, God forbid the red carpet treatment that they think they're entitled to, if they don't get it, they're losing their fucking minds. Um, again, these are all great ways to look at somebody who's like genuinely confident and successful versus somebody that everything is based on this kind of projection or like what they're not getting that they feel like they're entitled to. Entitlement here is name of the game. Entitlement, not work ethic. Um, have significant interpersonal problems and always are feeling slighted by the people around them. React with rage or contempt and try to belittle the other person to make themselves appear superior. Um, so here you're not going to often hear this person acknowledge both sides of the conversation. Like, well, you know, in all fairness, blah, 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 blah. That doesn't happen with narcissists. Um, they have difficulty regulating their emotions and behavior. They usually fly off the handle very, very easily. Um, and usually are triggered by things that are seemingly unconnected to the things they're flying off the handle about, because usually the conversation that exists out in the ethers that you guys are both latching onto is not what's actually triggering them. It's what your conversation triggers them to reflect on in their own minds that's causing the emotional outburst. Uh, feel depressed and moody because they fall short of perfection, um, and then have secret feelings of insecurity, shame, vulnerability, and humiliation. So obviously, narcissists, borderlines, that's going to be a lot of that number two, where there's just such a deep fracturing that you might genuinely not ever get through to a place where you can co-create a reality where you can exist together. I have seen genuinely people come out of those things and uh, you know, a lot of clinical work will say that borderline is basically incurable, that it's not treatable. I've personally had a lot of experience and success working with borderline because of the way break actually extracts the information in a way where they don't know how we're using it or why. So because they actually get all of the information out there and then you teach them to step back and objectively assess it, we're able to break through that battle of pushing through the wound and we're actually able to get them through the cognitive distance where they're like, look at this. I just spent 30 years of my life being a total dick. And it's like, yeah, well, good news. You still have 20 to 30 more good years where you can stop being a dick. Welcome to break method. So it is possible. And that is one of the ways that we do it because you're not pulling the information in a way that activates their wound, you're kind of getting, you're circumventing it and then showing it to them when they're not activated, which is the best way to help them push their cognitive dissonance. So then type three, genuine sociopaths, psychopaths that are literally going to do anything to make you feel crazy. This is genuinely not as common as you would think. Um, I think people throw around these terms pretty frequently and often they're not at all the case. We're more dealing with that like number one or number two type person. Um, so the best way to really look at this one is have they been like this from early childhood consistently on? Have they shown no ability to self-assess, no remorse, no ability to self-reflect? If so, and it's been consistently this way since childhood and they were, you know, like torturing tiny animals and things, you're probably dealing with a type three gaslighter. In which case, run, bitch. Just kidding. Don't run. There's still a lesson to be learned, but we are going to tell you in what way you can actually navigate your way out of this. 
Um, and for those of you that have maybe not listened to my podcast before, I try, I'm trying not to swear. I'm trying really hard, but they just happen sometimes. And even when I use words like that, it's not ever in a derogatory way. It's like a, you know, just colloquialisms, funny things that people say. Um, so just remember that in general, I try to keep it as PG 13 as I possibly can, but every once in a while they fly out. So, uh, let's talk about emotional homeostasis. This is important. So a lot of people are not familiar with the concept of emotional homeostasis. And I know that we've already been through our hours, so I am trying to hoof it here. Effectively what happens is what you experience with the highest frequency during your childhood it creates these patterns in your brain that then start to dictate how your body craves chemical interaction in the form of emotion. So if you experience sadness all the time when you're a child, your body gets, for lack of a you know better term, just addicted to sadness. You're probably a crier. If you were a crier in childhood, you're probably a crier now. There was some mechanism that crying was able to help you achieve that actually got you an outcome or a result that you desired. So it's stuck with you to today. One of the things that we do in break method is we actually repattern your emotional addiction. So instead of just all of the crap that happened repetitively in your childhood and what that made you believe about the world and choose to define the world, even though it's not objective reality, we teach you how to rewire that so that you can live your life more authentically based on what's presently happening in the moment, not just choosing to put on a lens to literally point at everything in your life and being like, yep, just like childhood, yep, just like childhood, yep, just like childhood, which is basically what this emotional homeostasis thing looks like. I was raised in an environment where I experienced a high level of anger. I was a very, very angry, pissed off kid. Um, And now it's takes me way too long to get angry. In fact, I need to get more angry more often. I've done so much work on this that now I experience a whole subset of other emotions that I probably went my entire life not experiencing because I was so overcome by this autopilot response of anger. So after you go through this process of acknowledging what your emotional homeostasis is and how to repattern it, usually you start to experience like a whole new world of emotions. So a lot of people tend to think that this work would make you like an emotionless robot when in fact it just clears the way for you to emote based on what's actually happening in the present instead of choosing to label every single thing that you experience through the lens of the past. And a bunch of people typed in and they said, please don't keep it PG-13. We love it when you swear. I mean, it's just bound to happen. I'm, I'm actively trying. I don't want my iTunes podcast to have like a rated R explicit lyrics thing on it. So I'm trying to keep it g So just to give you a quick snapshot of what this might look like, this childhood patterning coming into the present, these are some things that I feel like you probably have run into. If you were a child and you felt like you weren't enough or you were invisible, you probably have attracted relationships with your current partner or your ex that makes you feel the exact same way. If you felt stupid or confused as a child, you've probably chosen a partner that activates this exact same thing in you. And maybe it's not your partner currently, but if you look back at all of your previous partners, you're like, ah, there it is. Maybe you've learned your lesson, in which case, God bless you. I hope you enjoy the life of not living constantly in symbiotic dysfunction. It's not a fun thing to do. 
if you felt powerless and scared as a child, you're probably experiencing that in your relationships right now. If you felt like you were rejected or abandoned, you've likely destroyed any chance of actually being in a relationship or kept everyone at an arm's distance so that you can't actually ever get to that place where then you can be abandoned or rejected. Usually the people that experience the deep-seated abandonment and rejection, you do everything you can to avoid ever having to be all in on a relationship because then your heart's like, here, don't squish it. And then, of course, you're worried that they're going to squish it. And then, by the way, this person probably always gives their heart away to the person that actually will be like, cool, splat. So let's define symbiotic dysfunction. This is a term that I coined for break method, so it's not like, like, let's look this up. So when I talk about symbiotic dysfunction, I'm talking about the interaction, which is going to be communication, body language, subtle body cues, etc., within the relationship that serves a mutually beneficial purpose. And in this case, it's meant to fulfill each other's emotional addiction pattern through emotion and response to the emotion. The easiest way to describe this is to explain our relationship. So imagine you and another person who whatever relationship made you motivated to come to this podcast today and start to figure out what the H-E-L-L is going on. Basically what happens is in every relationship, right, with two people, I push a button on you and you hand me a red ice cream cone. And when I get your red, when you hand me the red ice cream cone, it elicits an emotional response in me. And when I'm sitting there looking at my red ice cream cone, that is how I then push your button. So effectively, all we know how to do in every interpersonal relationship is push a button in somebody and have them hand us the red ice cream cone. I want your red, you want my red. These red ice cream cones are very much tied to our childhood emotional addictions and source beliefs that were created by that concept of emotional homeostasis. Where a lot of the ability to change our toxic relationship lies is in getting very clear on what our current red ice cream cones are. When someone pushes that button, what are the things that we give them? Is it with withholding love? Is it yelling Is it hiding? Is it lying? Everyone has certain behaviors that serve as your red ice cream cone. And our goal with changing these toxic relationships is to figure out what behavior or tone to our voice or response is going to be the opposite of that red. Let me give you an example of something a little bit more clear here with the diagram. So for those of you that are on the podcast, I highly recommend becoming a premium subscriber so that you can see some of these PDF tools because they're definitely a helpful component of the work. I will also try to explain them to you verbally so that you can visualize in your car. So when we talk about switching from red ice cream cones to green ice cream cones here, effectively what we're doing is imagining two Pac-Mans, right? So I'm one Pac-Man, you're the other. Um, When I choose to react a certain way, it's going to bring up an emotion in you. And that emotion in you forces you to react a certain way to me. Right now, both of our reactions are that red ice cream cone. If we can get clear on what our emotional addiction is, where we're most likely to be drawn to emotionally, and what behavioral decisions we make out of that place, we can start to bring a lot of awareness to what that pattern is and actually choose the opposite. In this case, that would serve as our green ice cream cone. 
one of the things that is important here to remember is that because this addiction runs deep and we chose these partners on a subconscious level very intentionally, when we make the move to stop serving red ice cream cones, our intimate relationship or our friendship or our business partner is going to choose one of three options. They're going to A, work really, really, really extra overtime hard, pushing every other button they can possibly think of to get the red because they're addicted to it like a crackhead. Uh, Number two, they're going to turn to everybody else in their life, even people that they might not have sought out red ice cream cones before and try to get their red ice cream cone fix because if you're not giving it to them, their body's still going to be chemically dependent on getting their fix of anger. So if you didn't make them angry today, they're much more likely to pick a fight with somebody at work or at the gas station or label a situation a certain way because their body is craving that emotional response. Option number C is for, and this is the ideal one that you're working toward, is that over time they will learn to enjoy red ice cream cone or green ice cream cones. This does take time and it takes commitment because when you first start to be aware of what responses you're giving that actually play into this whole cycle, and by the way, let it be very clear, I'm in no way saying that many of you are responsible for this cycle of toxicity or that you deserve it. What I would like you to see is that it is just that. It is a cycle and there are certain things that you're doing that can either bring about a more positive outcome or a significantly worse outcome. So if we can do our best to accurately self-assess and see how we are playing a role in this cycle to see what small tweaks we can make that perhaps don't actually elicit that red ice cream response in our partner, we can drastically change the relationship. This is why when we talk about toxic relationships, one of the most important things to remember is that you can drastically change a toxic relationship and bring it out of toxicity, not necessarily by even like bringing your partner in on it. You can do it in most cases by yourself. If you stop hitting the ping pong ball and acing them every time, and they don't like to be aced, and I'm, I'm using a ping pong example because everyone can imagine the, the pace and the sound of a ping pong game, right? So if really all these interactions are you and your partner playing a ping pong game, if you start to hit the ball in a different pattern than you typically hit it, they're going to be forced to respond back to something new. You're giving them a totally new set of stimuli with which to respond to. So when you break that cycle and you break that pattern, you're creating room to create these authentic responses that are based in the present moment instead of completely tied to past experiences looked at through the lens of your childhood wounds. So when we say we're shifting from red ice cream cones to green ice cream cones, imagine that instead of always hitting like I hit the ball to the right, then he hits it to the left, and then I hit it to the right, and he hits it to the left. Whatever your ping pong pace or cadence is, you have to disrupt it by offering something in complete opposition to it. So instead of always hitting left, now you're going to hit all the way right. And it's going to take a second for him to get out of or her, get out of the pattern and realize like, oh, wow, they're all of a sudden hitting to this other way now. It works. I'm serious. And even if your partner is not a part of it and not doing the work with you, you can drastically change the course of the relationship simply by offering them a new stimuli to respond to. 
So in the context of gaslighting, because I know we're running out of time, um, using those three common source beliefs that we talked about, this is effectively what their gaslighting is trying to get you to do. And sometimes when you can you can align like, yeah, I tend to feel like I'm not enough, and then you also know you're being gaslit by somebody. When you latch on to these three things that I'm about to explain to you, the three reasons why they're gaslighting you in the first place, usually that's enough to acknowledge it and start to take the steps to free yourself from it. So gaslighting for the person whose source belief is that they're not enough, they trigger you into the source belief to control you and keep you from asking questions about their behavior. So if they're not wanting you to look at what they're really doing behind the scenes, if they're up to something malicious or no good, they're going to constantly trigger you into your source belief, basically to get you to shut up and stop asking questions. Um, if you're dealing with gaslighting and your source belief is you have to hold it all together for everyone, they're likely triggering you into your source belief so that you can feed their entitlement, laziness, and delusions of grandeur. So let's say that you're dealing with somebody that is a narcissist which obviously a lot of us do, um, or you are dealing with somebody that has traits that are narcissistic, right? Like maybe really low work ethic, but like thinks they deserve everything in the world, lots of entitlement issues, like believes their life is supposed to be this amazing way, but they're not actually putting in the effort to make that happen. They're likely to find somebody to pull into the fold that they can activate in this way that has that I have to hold it all together for everyone source belief so that they can just keep sucking the blood out of them for their entitlement and laziness. Um, so if you've found yourself in that relationship, especially ladies, wake up, smell the coffee, that's what's happening. Uh, gaslighting for I have to be in control to be safe. They trigger you into your source belief by creating such a dysfunctional environment that you never feel safe, right? Because if your attempt to feel safe is always to control your environment, if they make it so that you can never control any aspects of your environment, you'll never feel safe. Therefore, your sympathetic nervous system will always be activated and they can keep you in that fear mode and control you all damn dead. Um, and I know I brought this up a little bit earlier. It is really rare for somebody to be activated in this deep, toxic way in both intimate relationships and friendships or business relationships. Usually, it's one or the other. You usually have a wound that's like, clearly, my thing is dysfunction in intimate relationships, or clearly, my thing is the dysfunction in friendships. It's important to take a look at this because they're coming from completely different source beliefs. Obviously, the steps to unwind these things would be the same. The being very aware of what red ice cream cones you're currently serving, but also what buttons you're pushing that are giving you your red ice cream cones. Because as much as the other person might seem to be at fault, you're still engaged in a relationship that's full of symbiotic dysfunction. What do we experience? Why do we experience toxicity and what can we learn from it? I brought this up briefly, and I do think that this is an important thing, not necessarily on like the practical, tangible, scientific side, but for those of you that are spiritually seeking and digging deeper into the context of what it is to be a soul in a human body, what the human experience means and all the rest of it, toxic relationships can be a tough one because when you experience pain, it's really uncomfortable and you don't want to experience the pain and then you start to question humanity, like why would humanity involve this much pain, right? So it starts to create these deeper-seated esoteric questions. So I would argue that these toxic relationships 
in your life, if you sit back and you objectively look at what's going on and you do the reflection and self-assessment, these are just showing you areas where as a soul, you still have growth to do. And I think it's really limiting when you allow yourself to get stifled and stuck in the guilt and shame and remorse. Instead, I think it's really much more powerful to acknowledge what happened, take responsibility for it, learn the lesson, and not ever do it again, right? That's how we know that we're moving forward, we're growing, we're transforming, and that, you know, theoretically the powers that be out there won't toss us that same exact thing to deal with again. So I'm going to leave you with five steps to ease the toxicity. Obviously, we go way, 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 way deep into this into break method. But I think these are five steps that really anybody can take from this podcast and start to apply immediately in your life to start feeling a little bit of a break, get a little get a little movement in the right direction in these relationships. So number one, acknowledge your source belief and learn to understand how it's triggered by your current relationship. So obviously, I gave you examples of the top three that I see the most often. Figure out, like, what is that core message? If you were to look at your childhood and say, of all the things I learned in childhood, the most common theme or belief is blank. Then discover what toxicity mechanisms are currently being used in your relationship. So what do those red ice cream cones look like? Is it happening through communication style, through voice tone, through body language, through withholding love? What are the mechanisms that actually create this toxic environment? Because you have to understand what that looks like so that you know how to change it to green. You've got to commit to changing your responses to something that actively does not trigger their source belief. So obviously some of this, if you're the person that you're trying to solve the toxicity with is not trying to work with you on it, there is a certain amount of educated guessing involved here. But I think for the vast majority of you, if you step back and look objectively at a person and everything that's happened to them, you can probably get pretty close to what their source belief is that you can start to make some active steps to change your behaviors. But again, in that ping pong scenario, you're not just always hitting the ball to the left corner, that you're actually figuring out like, what would I have to do to hit the ball to the right corner, which gives them a new set of stimuli with which to respond to me. So change the ping pong game. Hold yourself accountable and practice brutal self-awareness. It is, I think, one of the most amazing gifts we have as human beings to look back at this amazing recording device that is our brain and our memory and sift through all these instances and constantly learn new lessons to give new context and nuances to look back at things that have happened to us so we see it in a new light. So practice that brutal self-awareness. Don't let yourself get stuck in the guilt and shame cycle and always allow yourself to stay in that victim mode. Learn the lesson, do better, show up, be more responsible, um, own up to the, the parts that you played in things and don't let it happen again to the best of your ability. And then five, acknowledge what was going on in your life when this relationship started. Uh, this is a really important thing to get a grip on because if you're experiencing a really toxic relationship and you look back and you say, okay, what was my mental state at the time that I actually attracted this person or at the time that I labeled this person as like a hot commodity if it's an intimate relationship? A lot of us are in relationships where you look back and you're like, what the fuck was I thinking? What you were thinking is that you had basically like this wounded beer goggle on and you saw something that you thought was great, but really that was just your body wanting to experience this emotional addiction 
childhood wound on a repetitive basis. But then when you start to make some moves and you come out of it and you grow up, you're like, wow, this is really painful and I need to either stop the toxicity through communication and work or exit stage left. Also, this last step, decide if they deserve your committed time to healing the toxicity or if maybe it's time to learn your lesson and move on. On this last one here, it's important to note that I'm absolutely not a proponent of like cutting and running. It's not my thing. Uh, A lot of people come into Break Method, the four-month course, thinking that they're going to get the guts up to leave their partner, right? Like, oh, it's been so toxic for so many years. And really what they find out in Break Method is exactly what role they've been playing in it. And they see now how they can change it and shift it. And a lot of times it actually saves relationships that people thought were not salvageable. So this is only this is something that only you can really decide for yourself. But does this relationship deserve some of your committed time to really trying to shift from switching out these red ice cream cones to green? Or have you learned the lesson? Did you attract this person when you're in so much dysfunction? Now you've grown and you've grown apart. And maybe now it's just time to have acknowledged it, learned the lesson, and moved on. Hopefully this helped you understand a little bit more about toxic relationships, what's happening on the other side of the toxicity for you, why you call some of these people into your life, and what you can do about it to shift the conversation. Our semester break actually just started a couple days ago. Registration is open until September 15th. It's not too late to jump in there. It takes about three months. We have four months to finish it, but most people finish within three months. Uh, It takes all this work so much deeper, much deeper than I could ever hit it in an hour and a half. Hopefully you learned a lot. For those of you that are premium subscribers, you'll be getting sent the PDF of all the slides and the replay video. I will see you next time. Thanks for sharing this time with me. Thanks for checking out this week's episode of The Modern Good. To find out more about Break Method, head to breakmethod.com and to check out my workshops and public speaking schedule, busygold.com. I'll see you next week.